0: Well, that was the perfect song for us to sing before going to a text which I've titled this morning, Jesus is All You Need. And Chris and I don't always talk about what he's planning on playing and what I'm planning on preaching, um, as was the case this morning. We just, he just did his thing and I just did my thing, but the Spirit of God always does his thing which is pull it all together, and it's always encouraging to me when I see uh, how the Spirit of God does that, that it just gives me confidence that the Lord's in this, and uh, He's got something uh, super special in store for us today. And so last week, we launched into our study of Second Peter, and I just provided an overview of the entire letter and if you weren't here last Sunday, I would encourage you to go online and listen to that message because it'll give you all the background uh, information about this book. And I think you'll uh, learn a lot more from it uh, if you kind of have that background uh, in your mind as we go through it. So I encourage you to listen to that message if you didn't have a chance to already. But uh, this morning, we're going to dive in uh, to the first chapter here, and look at the first four verses, and so you can read along in your Bibles as I read verses one through four. "'Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ.'" Father, we thank you again this morning that we have the privilege of coming to your word and I pray that your spirit who inspired Peter to write this letter would now enlighten us to understand it and enable us to apply it to our lives. Would you by your spirit empower me as the preacher to make your word understandable and applicable and would you also enliven the hearers today that they would be receptive and responsive to your word so that ultimately your word would accomplish uh, your efficacious work in all of our lives and that we could all um, have a sense that we are leaving here today different than when we came. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, next weekend, there is a sold-out conference being held in Atlanta, Georgia that has caused no small stir within the evangelical world. Uh, it's called the Unconditional Conference, and it's being hosted at one of the campuses of North Point Community Church, which is pastored by Andy Stanley, who I assume you've heard of, one of the most influential pastors in America. And according to the conference website, and I'm just reading how they uh, are promoting this event, uh, this two-day premier event is for parents of LGBTQ children and for ministry leaders looking to discover ways to support parents and LGBTQ plus children in their churches. You will be equipped, refreshed, inspired as you hear from leading communicators on topics that speak to your heart, soul, and mind. We deeply desire this time will bring about healing and restoration. No matter what theological stance you hold, we invite you to listen, reflect, and learn as we we approach this topic from the quieter middle space. Now, there is definitely a need for a ministry to parents who are dealing with the pain and heartache of having a kid, one of their kids, come out as gay and choose a homosexual lifestyle. There's a growing number of parents who are having to uh, seek the Lord for wisdom and discernment to know how to, to, to navigate that very heartbreaking, very painful scenario, and uh, they definitely need uh, encouragement, and they need uh, refreshment, and they need counsel, and and they need ministry. But that last little phrase just kind of rubbed me the wrong way, where it says, no matter what theological stance you hold, we invite you to listen, reflect, and learn as we approach this topic from the quieter middle space. First of all, there is no middle space when it comes to the topic of homosexuality. The Bible is black and white on this issue, even though some Christians and some churches are caving into the pressure of secular society that insists on normalizing homosexuality, and they're trying to find a way around the very clear teachings of Scripture. Secondly, this is no quiet conference, but a loud and proud one, which is characteristic of the LGBTQ movement, which is evidenced by the fact that two of the speakers are men who are married to other men and are outspoken advocates for the legitimacy of monogamous same-sex relationships. And that's the thinking now, is maybe we can get this kind of through the, the system if we just say, well, it's monogamous, it's it's a it's a loyal, faithful relationship. Yes, it's between a, two men or two women, but at least it's monogamous, as if that's the kind of the standard. It just has to be monogamous. Another speaker is the author of a book called "Changing Our Mind," the landmark call for inclusion of LGBTQ Christians, in which uh, he traces his own. Um, pilgrimage that led him to conclude that while the Christian church has historically believed and taught that same-sex relationships are always wrong, the church has been historically wrong on this issue. And therefore, the church should change its mind on the issue like he has. But that would require us then to abandon the once-for-all faith that was handed down to us. Jude 4 talks about that. That we as Christians are called to contend earnestly for the faith and stand unflinchingly and unwaveringly on the unchanging authoritative standard of the Bible. People's opinions may change and society's laws may change, but God's word never changes. Unfortunately, Andy Stanley has been changing, slowly, and subtly over the past few years, and if you've followed his ministry, this really latest uh, event should come as no surprise. Back in 2018, he called for the church to unhitch itself from the Old Testament, which he argued should not be understood as the go-to source regarding any behavior in the church, which sounds to me like the second century heretic Marcion who believed that the Old Testament scriptures were not authoritative for a Christian, and even denied that the God of the Old Testament was not not, uh, the same God presented in the New Testament. And by the way, they kicked that guy out of the church as a heretic. I think unhitching ourselves from the Old Testament also contradicts Paul's bold testimony in Acts twenty twenty seven that he was committed to declaring the whole counsel of God. Old Testament and New Testament, right? That it's all important, it's all necessary for the Christian life. It's also the opposite of Peter's desire that he even expressed in this letter in 2 Peter 3, verse 2, where he said, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So Peter wanted to remind his readers of not just what Jesus had said, but also what the prophets had said, and you have to go back to the Old Testament in order to hear to remember what they said. And it really just flat out denies the inseparable relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I mean, you can't understand one without the other. They're a package deal. But I will say this, it is very convenient to unhitch yourself from the Old Testament because then you no longer have to deal with texts like Leviticus 18.22. It says, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It's an abomination. More recently, Andy Stanley dismissed biblical texts against homosexual behavior as clobber verses. In other words, any verse that's been used to clobber homosexuals over the years, you can't use that anymore because it's been misused. And he's insisting that the church in our day must adapt and learn how to include gay people in the life of the church. And in an effort to exhort the members of his own church to be more accepting of homosexuals, he said this, and I actually watched the clip of this, and and it was almost with a a scolding tone that he said this, "A, a gay person who still wants to attend church after the way they've been treated by the church I'm telling you, they have more faith than I do. They have more faith than a lot of you. He also said at one point, quote, if your theology gets in the way of ministry, like if there's somebody you can't minister to because of your theology, you have the wrong theology. Sadly, many pastors and many churches will follow his lead and change their theology in order to accommodate same-sex couples, and in doing so, will stumble and stray from the truth. We, on the other hand, must remain steadfast and and stand firm on what the Bible teaches about homosexuality. Now that doesn't mean that we should avoid homosexuals or be mean to them or look down our proud, self-righteous, pharisaical noses at them with disgust or disdain. I think when it comes to how we should respond to them, there there are two extremes to avoid. there's courteous accommodation, which is just oh, we're we're just polite and we just accept you the way you are and everything's fine and come on in. And then there's obnoxious confrontation, where you get out on the street corner with a sign that says "God hates homosexuals," right? I mean, you, you want to avoid both of those extremes. I think an uncompromisingly biblical response that avoids these two extremes of accommodation or or condemnation could be called compassionate confrontation. And I'm talking about a Christ-like response. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, seeing the people, Jesus felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. I'll never forget somebody saying that whenever you see somebody that looks kind of way out there, um, whether it's their hair or their tats or their piercings or you fill in the blank, whatever kind of, whoa, whoa, check that person out. Um, look past all that and just see them with a big t shirt that says, I need Jesus. And, and, and the, the weirder they may look to us, the louder they're just saying, I need Jesus. And so, as compassionate Christians, we know those who struggle with homosexuality are dealing with the effects of living in a sin-cursed, sin-corrupted body in a sin-cursed, sin-corrupted world. And to those who don't feel at home in their bodies, we offer the hope of the gospel, not a temporary physical transition, but a permanent spiritual transformation that will come to a glorious climax when Christ returns and redeems and restores this fallen, broken world along with our fallen, broken bodies. Now, that doesn't mean we allow practicing homosexuals to join our church or, or put them in leadership in our church or marry them in our church but we should cultivate an atmosphere where homosexuals feel welcome to come and are lovingly confronted with the good news that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross to set people free from their life of sin, including the sin of homosexuality. And that they can be forgiven for their sin if they're willing to repent and receive Jesus Christ. Because at the end of the day, the bottom line is they, they need Jesus. And Jesus is all they really need. And I think that's the point of the these opening four verses of Second Peter. Since the time that Peter wrote his first letter, he had become increasingly concerned about false teachers who were beginning to infiltrate the churches in Asia Minor. And so he wanted to guard these churches and Christians from being influenced by heretical doctrines and immoral lifestyles of these false teachers. And so uh, in what could be considered his final will and testament, he wrote a letter of warning. Peter didn't say where he was when he wrote this letter, as he did in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter 5.13, he mentioned that he was in Babylon, which we can assume was was, uh, Rome, Uh, And and I think it's, again, safe to assume he was probably still in Rome, knowing his death was imminent. Chapter 1, verse 14, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will also be diligent that any time after my departure you will be able to call these things to mind. And so he knew he was about to die, and his dying appeal was that his readers be rocks, like he was. He was Peter, nicknamed the rock. So he wanted, readers, he wanted his readers here to, to be rocks who stood firm in the midst of the dangerous, deceptive times that lay ahead of them. And so Peter reminded them of the truths they already knew in order to safeguard them from, from stumbling or straying from the Christian faith. He says that in chapter 1, verse 12, therefore I will always be ready to remind you of these things even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. He says the same thing in chapter 3, verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So Peter wanted to ground his readers in the truth because he knew that that would guard them from error. And in order to be a guarded Christian, you must be a grounded Christian. And in order to be a grounded Christian, you need to be a growing Christian. And that's why he ends this letter in verse uh, chapter 3, verse 17. He says, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So 2 Peter is a call to spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, which will keep us from being led astray from false teachers. Now, one of the common claims of false teachers in Peter's day and in our day is that Jesus is not enough, and even though we've come to, to know Christ since we all still sin regularly, and because living the Christian life is a daily struggle, it's natural to assume that something must be missing in our lives. Like, why isn't this working? And it's as if Christianity is like a, a package we get, and you turn it over, and it says battery's not included. And you're like, Oh. I was so excited about this, trying this new toy out, this new whatever, and, and now I gotta find some batteries, and where do I, where's the batteries? And I, well, I don't have any batteries. I gotta go out looking for batteries before I can enjoy this. And so we think, well, I, I've got Christ, but I've, I, I gotta find the batteries to make them work. And so Christians can be easily convinced by false teachers that we need to seek some kind of second blessing or or we need to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit or we need to have some mystical experience or hear some private revelation from God. But when we seek out other things besides Christ or beyond Christ, what we're doing is undermining the sufficiency of Christ and doubting the sufficiency of all that we've received and have been granted through our relationship with him. And so it's no surprise that Peter launched this letter by reminding his readers that in Jesus Christ, we have been given everything we need to live a God-honoring, God-pleasing life. And what he said here in these first four verses simply highlights the, the sovereignty and the sufficiency of our salvation. Note just a couple of the words that at least jumped out to me. As I've been reading through this and studying these verses, notice the word received in verse 1, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Verses 3 and 4 both have the word granted, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Verse 4, for by these, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. And then in verse Three, he uses the word call through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And I think all these words are are simply highlighting the fact that salvation is God's work, not our work. That he is sovereign over our salvation. But notice the words that highlight the sufficiency of of our salvation, verse two, he uses the word multiply. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Um, verse three, seeing that His divine power is granted to us everything uh, pertaining to life and godliness. And then in verse four, he talks about His precious and magnificent promises—hundreds, thousands of promises that we have. Uh, regarding our salvation. So, what I want us to see here in these four verses is three reminders regarding the sovereign, all-sufficient salvation that God provides to all those who truly know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Three reminders regarding the sovereign, all-sufficient salvation that God provides to all those who truly know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Another way you could say it is that the recipients of this letter, of which we are included, by the way, are the recipients of three things. Christ-privileged provision, number one. Number two, Christ-profound power. And number three, Christ-precious promises. So let's look at the first reminder here, um, and that is Christ-privileged provision, christ Privileged provision. Verse 1 Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have reached a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So Peter began his letter with the standard salutation used in New Testament times. He included a reference to himself, the writer, also to the recipients, and also a greeting in the form of a blessing. And notice how he referred to himself by two names and two titles. He calls himself first Simon. Simon was the name he was given at birth by his mother and father. Um, Peter was the name given to him by Jesus. And again, I, I mentioned last week that Second uh, Peter is probably the most contested, um, the authorship of 2 Peter is probably the most contested uh, authorship of any of the New Testament letters. And there's tons of ink that's been spilled, you know, disproving or proving that Second uh, Peter was actually written by Peter. Well, it seems unlikely to me that if someone was forging this letter, they would have not included the word Simon. Because if you remember, that's what Jesus would call Peter whenever he acted in the flesh and needed to be corrected. This is not something he would want to have added here if it was someone else, but I think it gives... Evidence that this is Peter, because at the end of his life, he's wanting to remind his readers of the humbling growth process he himself had experienced in learning to follow Christ. Even though he was an apostle, he bumbled his way through the Christian life, and by God's grace, he remained faithful and steadfast to the end. And so he says, Simon Peter, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Again, this is so encouraging to see at the end of his life when he was at the apex of his apostolic authority. In other words, he could have thrown his weight around real easy and people would have led him because he's the Apostle Peter. But he didn't go there. He didn't lead with that. He led with this bondservant. And he he was, he was just humbly referred to himself as Christ's slave who was under obligation to obey and honor and serve and submit to his beloved master no matter the cost. This was his way of expressing his loyalty to Christ and his total devotion to do his will. This was also his way of acknowledging Christ's lordship or ownership of his life. He knew his life didn't belong to him, but Christ had bought him with a price, the price of his blood. He said that in Chapter one of the first letter, verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ. So he was not his own. He was a bondservant of Christ. But he was also an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that word apostle there literally means sent one. And it was a term reserved for uh, the 12 disciples, or you could say 13 if you want to include Paul, it was, uh, though it was a term indicating uh, that uh, you had been chosen and commissioned by Christ himself to be his official representative or messenger in the world. And so, by the way, if, if uh, somebody tells you today, oh, yeah, I'm an apostle, or you hear, oh, apostle so-and-so, Run. Because they're either they're really old or they're lying. Because the apostles, and I think that term is reserved, should be reserved for the original 12 or 13 disciples. Um, Paul says that he gave some as apostles and prophets for the founding of the church. And then we're now in the church age where there's evangelists and pastor teachers, right, that are equipping the saints for the work of service. And by the way, there was a requirement to be an apostle or to be considered an apostle, and that's according to Acts chapter 1. You had to have been with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry and be an eyewitness of his resurrection or of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, which, which that uh, Peter qualified. In fact, he also had the double blessing of seeing the transfiguration of Christ, where he got to see the glory of Christ even before he rose from the dead. And so he was uniquely qualified to be a credible witness for Christ who would speak accurately and authoritatively about Christ. In other words, um, what he says in this letter we can take to the bank. We can trust. It's trustworthy. Paul would introduce himself in the same way from time to time, Titus chapter one verse one, Paul a bond servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, he even started uh, his magnum opus, Romans with the same phrase, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle. And so I just like how they they started with their personal title and then stated their official title, which I think was just modeling a Christ-like balance between humility and authority, one commentator said it this way peter in presenting himself in these terms sets a pattern for all in spiritual leadership the submissive sacrificial anonymity of a slave combined with the dignity significance and authority of an apostle this past week i was here at the church and went to use the restroom and i walked in and there was one of our pastors with a mop and a bucket in his hand cleaning up a mess in the bathroom and I commended him. I said, man, thank you. I appreciate you being willing to do that. And I walked away so grateful to have the privilege of serving alongside guys who are not too big for the riches. In other words, they, 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 they've arrived, they're the pastor, and they're in a position of authority, and they're above doing menial tasks like, you know, mopping up a, a wet floor. Um, but that's what it means to be a servant leader, Right? that you're always willing to do whatever it takes, right, to serve the body of Christ. And I was so grateful for his example. It inspired me and blessed me. But notice how Peter goes on here to address those he was writing to. He says, so those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. So it's, it's kind of a generic way of uh, talking about them. Uh, but we know in chapter 3, verse 2, uh, it says, um, or excuse me, three verse one, he says, this is now the second letter I'm writing to you. And so, again, I think uh, he was addressing the same people who he had written to a year or so earlier that he addressed in chapter one of First Peter, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Cappadocia, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen so, again, these are the, the provinces in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. But notice how he alluded to the, to the fact that they had received salvation as a gracious gift based on God's sovereign choice of them. Which, again, that's how he launched his first letter. He said, to those who were chosen. I mean, he just came right out of the gate talking about the doctrine of election. He didn't, like, hide it behind his back and say, well, I'll have to just warm up to this one. Uh, And he just went out and said it, that you were chosen by the Lord for salvation. And he's, he's, uh, I think, indicating the same idea here when he talks about having received a faith of the same kind as ours. In other words... Their salvation was unearned, it was undeserved, as opposed to them obtaining it themselves by human effort or achieving it by personal merit. And the Bible is very clear that salvation is by grace through faith alone, and that even faith itself is a gift from God. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse eight and nine, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. You can't even boast about your faith, which is usually the thing that we talk about as our part in salvation, right? We had to bring the faith. Well, no, you didn't even have faith in and of yourself. God had to grant you that faith. Philippians chapter one, verse 29, verse 29 for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So so faith is a gift granted to us by Christ. And so the only reason anyone comes to faith in Christ is because God grants them the ability to believe in Christ. And notice how Peter confirmed that the faith his readers had, had been given, or excuse me, the, 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 he, he confirms here that, that the faith that his readers had been given was the same faith that he had been given. He says, so those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. I like here how uh, the K, King, King James Version, some of you have the King James Version or the New King James Version, or, or some of you might be OG in it with the ASV, which is the like, that's the original New American Standard, right, way in the old days. But I, I like how they translate this phrase as like precious faith. Did you see that if you have one of those translations? Like precious faith. This was a, a phrase that was used in Peter's time to describe how foreigners were granted equal citizenship in a city as those who were born there. In other words, if somebody moved to a city and they became a a citizen, they had the same rights and privileges as the person that that grew up there. And so Peter was implying here that the faith given to them by God was of equal honor and standing and value as the faith that God had given him and the rest of the apostles. So in other words, our faith is no different than the faith of the apostles who were privileged to walk with Jesus face to face. In fact, Peter seemed to exalt our faith above his own in 1 Peter because we had never seen Christ with our own eyes. And so in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So it may have been that the false teachers were undermining the faith of these early believers, saying that in some way their faith was inferior, some way it was deficient. The Gnostics would eventually teach that only a privileged few could be part of the inner circle. This this could have been a a pre-Gnostic view um, here, that in order to be truly saved, a person had to receive some special higher knowledge that was only attainable by a select group of people. And so I think what we should draw from this verse here is that while we may be living thousands of years after Christ and his apostles, we shouldn't let anyone cast doubt on our faith or our standing in Christ as if we are less advantaged or less privileged than believers in the first century. We all attain our faith, we all attain the same exact faith in the same exact way. It's based on the imputed righteousness of Christ. Notice how he goes on, he says, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, this is the very heart of the gospel here. God not only provides us the faith to believe, but he also provides us the righteousness that we need to be accepted into his holy presence. And he does that by transferring our unrighteousness to Christ and Christ transferring Christ's righteousness to us. In other words, he, he treats Christ as if he lived our lives and treats us as if we lived Christ's life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 is probably the clearest statement of this. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteous of God in him. In fact, even in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, it says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The point is this, that Christ lived the perfect life that all of us failed to live. He died the awful death that all of us deserve to die. And it's on that basis that God can show grace to sinners who repent of their sin and place their faith in Christ alone for their salvation. And then don't miss this last little phrase there. He says, By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is one of the the great Christological passages in the New Testament, which plainly teaches and clearly proves that Jesus Christ is co equal with the Father. And you've got plenty of verses in the the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, in, in in Paul's epistles. That clearly uh, emphasized the deity of Christ. But here, just in a simple little phrase with, that has one article which makes both terms refer to the same person, he just says uh, our there, our God and Savior Jesus Christ. And so apparently false teachers were undermining the deity of Christ. And so Peter used this phrase here and also several more times uh, in this letter uh, to prove the deity of Christ. Uh, chapter 1, verse 11, for in this way the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Chapter 2, verse 20, for if after they have escaped the defilement of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 2, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles and then Verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. In other words, attributes to Christ the glory due God. Why? Because Jesus is God. Then notice he says in verse 2 Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. He used the same salutation as he did in the first letter, Uh, chapter 1, verse 2. He said, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure, which was a combination of the characteristic Greek and Hebrew greetings at the time. Grace was the the Greek greeting, which uh, refers to God's undeserved, unearned kindness and favor to uh, undeserving, guilty sinners. Peace is what we experience as a result of being reconciled to God and having our sins forgiven. And once we're saved, grace is what sustains us through the ups and downs of life, and peace is what shields our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so Peter wanted us to experience these two things in abundance, but notice they can only happen, we can only experience these things if we know God through his son Jesus. grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Jesus himself said, John 17, 3, this is eternal life that that, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And the knowledge that Jesus was talking about there and that Peter referred to here implies an intimate personal relationship with someone. And the word knowledge there in verse 2, it is is not the normal word for knowledge, which is gnosis in the Greek. It's epignosis, which was like knowledge on steroids. Okay, it was a, a beefed up version of knowledge. It was a stronger form of knowledge, and so Paul used this term, I think, to combat the gnostic thinking. Um, or I should say Paul used this term, epignosis, like Peter here, uh, in the book of Colossians to to uh, confront and combat the Gnosticism he was writing against. And, and it appears that Peter was doing the same thing here in this book. And he uses this word knowledge a number of times uh, in verse 3, in verse 8, chapter 2, verse 20, chapter 3, verse 18. Um, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is one of the theme themes of one of the themes of 2 Peter. It's one of the key words that's used over and over again. And so Paul's teachers were apparently claiming that they they were the ones that had the true knowledge of God. And so what Peter was referring to was not the same kind of higher knowledge of the Gnostics, but a fuller, deeper knowledge of Christ. And he was distinguishing here between knowing about someone and knowing them personally. We all know Donald Trump. We, we say that, right? We know Donald Trump. We know about Donald Trump. I don't know how, how many of us have ever met Donald Trump, and Donald Trump definitely doesn't know us. He's never met me. I don't know him. He doesn't know me. I know about him. The point is that we can know a lot about Jesus by reading the Bible and and, and coming to church and sitting under preaching, but that doesn't necessarily mean we know Jesus personally. In fact, the scariest words in the Bible could be Jesus' words in Matthew 7 verse 21 Christ. He shares that passion in Philippians chapter 3 verse 10, I want to know Christ. Peter began and ended this letter by urging his readers to pursue the knowledge of Christ, a fuller, deeper, more intimate relationship with Christ so that they could experience these blessings to the fullest extent. But this is not the only benefit of Having a genuine personal relationship with Jesus Christ, Peter went on to explain that those who truly know Jesus have everything they need to live the Christian life. Notice verse three. We see Christ's profound power. He says, "Seeing that His divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence." In other words, Christ's power provides us everything we need to live a life that is pleasing to him. His power is what causes and enables the commencement of the Christian life and the continuance of the Christian life and the completion of the Christian life. It is through the power of Christ that we are justified and sanctified and ultimately will be glorified. His power delivers us us from the penalty of sin as well as the from the power of sin it rescues us from damnation but it also rescues us from being defiled by sin and just as his power is sufficient to save us his power is also sufficient to sanctify us and to conform us to his likeness and i think that's really what this verse is talking about one commentator said it well quote life and godliness define the realm of sanctification the living of the Christian life on earth to the glory of God, between initial salvation and final glorification. With the gift of new life in Christ came everything related to sustaining that life, all the way to glorification. That is why believers are eternally secure and can be assured that God will empower them to persevere to the end through all temptations, sins, failures, struggles, and trials of life. So listen, beloved, don't let anyone ever tell you or convince you that you don't have what it takes to be a Christian. If you have Christ, you have all you need and all you'll ever need. And living a holy, godly, obedient life is not something that just a few super saints can achieve, but it's possible for everyone who Christ has called out of this world to be his follower. Did you see that there at the end of verse three? Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. This is a reference to the effectual and irresistible call to salvation, which the New Testament talks a lot about. We don't have time to look at all the verses, but the point is simply this. Christ chooses us in eternity past, and he calls us in time. How does he do that? By opening our eyes to the glory and excellence of Christ. In other words, to the beauty and perfection of Christ compared to our ugly, imperfect, sinful selves. And Christ becomes more attractive to us than sin. And we're drawn away from sin out of a desire to live a pure and holy life so we can be more like Jesus. And so no matter how ordinary or inadequate you feel, You have everything you need to live the Christian life through Christ, His Word, and His Spirit. And the combined power of that holy trifecta is greater than all of Satan's schemes and everything in our sinful heart. So we have Christ's profound power. And then lastly, we have Christ's precious promises. We have Christ's precious promises, verse 4, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. By the way, this word precious is one of Peter's favorite words. In his first letter, he called a Christian's faith precious. He called Christ's blood precious. He called Christ himself precious. Um, He called a woman with a gentle and quiet spirit precious precious. Chapter 3, verse 4, now he calls Christ's promises precious. And he's simply referring to all the, the, the myriad of promises in the Bible that relate to our salvation and particularly our sanctification. Like Romans 8.28 That God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Like 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is perfected in your weakness. Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. James 4, 7, if you submit to the Lord, the devil will flee from you. 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sin, right, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to to cleanse you from from all unrighteousness. How about this one? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Talk about, talk, talk about one of the, the best promises in the Bible. No temptation has overtaken you, but that which is common to man, and God is faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with every temptation, he'll provide a way of, of escape so you can endure it. It's actually three promises in one, right? He's, he's basically saying that no no temptation or trial, by the way, you can use that word interchangeably, that word parosmos there. No temptation or trial is remarkable. Like, you're not the only one who's ever had to go through what you're going through. Number two, there's no temptation or trial that's unbearable. You can never say, I can't take this anymore. No, because God never puts more on you than you can handle. And, the, the, or, and, and no temptation or no trial is inescapable. He will provide a way for you to endure that. And so that's just one example of how God has promises, promised to provide us all that we need to resist every temptation and endure every trial. And so when the cravings come or we feel like caving in, we can claim these promises in order to overcome whatever tempt, temptation or trial that we face. So that, notice he says, so that by them, these promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Peter wasn't saying that we will become little gods at some point, like a lot of false teachers claim. He's simply saying that when you're born again, you're given a new nature. 2 Corinthians 5.17, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. The old is gone, the new has come. And once we come to know Christ and begin to grow in Christ we're able to become less and less like the world and more and more like Christ. Paul talks about this transformation in 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord, the Spirit. All of us were created in the image of God, but sin has distorted that image. And so what the point of Christ is Christ's point is he's wanting to make us, God's point is to make us to restore his image in us by making us like Jesus, who's a perfect reflection of God, right? We know that from John 1, talks about that. He was the image of the invisible God. Colossians chapter 1 says that as well. And he says, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Before we came to Christ, we were controlled by Satan, we were enslaved to our sinful passions, we were headed for hell. But God in his grace and rich mercy, it says it says in Ephesians 2 made us alive together with Christ and provided us a way of escape. Escape from sin, escape from death, escape from hell. And not only have we escaped the penalty of sin, but we also are in the process of escaping the power of sin. And rather than being controlled by sin, we are being conformed to Christ. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the message today, one day when Christ comes or calls us home, we will escape this sin-cursed sin cursed sin-corrupted world, and be delivered from our sin-curse, sin-corrupted bodies, and receive sinless, glorified bodies, and live forever in the new heavens and the new earth that will be free of sin and all of its corrupting effects. So, very simply, Paul, or excuse me, Peter Explain the lavish resources we have through Christ that are sufficient to meet all of life's trials, all of life's temptations, all of life's challenges, all of life's demands. And he wanted us to know from the very start of this letter that Jesus is all we need. He's enough. And no true Christian can ever say they don't have what it takes to live the Christian life, because you do. You say, then when, why, why do I have such a hard time overcoming sin in my life? Why do I struggle so much to live a godly life? And, and you begin to, to wonder what you're missing, and you keep seeking something more, but you never seem to experience victory in your life. And you look around and say, why is that person doing way better than I am? And I, I just am always struggling, and you're just like in this never-ending hunt for the batteries, Well, perhaps it's because you're missing the most obvious thing. Could it be that you lack the most important thing? And that is Jesus Christ. That you simply know about Christ, but you don't really know Christ. You've never been truly born again. You've got a lot of information, got a lot of facts up in your head about Jesus. But you've never truly repented of your sin and place your faith alone in him for your salvation. Jesus is what you need. Jesus is what you're missing. And while I don't want to cause doubt in people's minds who might be struggling, you know, we all struggle in the Christian life, right? It's a battle. Uh, If it is a battle, that's a good thing. Praise God for that. If there's a battle, if there's a war raging in your heart, that's a good thing. And that you hate your sin and that you want to change and, and grow and be more pleasing to the Lord. And when you sin, you know that it displeased him and disobeyed him and you confess it to him. That's a good indication that you know Christ. But if there's not that battle going on and you're just like, you know what, I just, I just must stink as a Christian. I just, you know, I just don't know how to do this thing. Well, maybe it's because you're not a Christian and you lack the spirit of God and Romans chapter 8, I would commend to you. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. Maybe you go home and read Romans 8, verses 1 through 17, which just simply talks about that if you're in Christ, right, there's difference between being in the flesh, and if you're in the flesh, you can't please the Lord. It's just impossible. That might be your answer. But if you're in Christ, you have the Spirit, right? You have the Holy Spirit. And so sometimes I wonder when I talk to people, like, man, I just, I just keep given in, given in, given in, and they they seem to lack any power whatsoever to overcome sin. I'm like, hey, do do you have the Holy Spirit in you? And if you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, that means you're not a Christian, right? Because in order to have the Spirit, you have to be in Christ. And so again, I don't want to cause anyone to unnecessarily doubt your faith, the genuineness of your faith, but the Bible does tell us to examine our faith In fact, we're gonna be told that by Peter himself um, in verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. And so my question is very simple. Are you sure that you're saved? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for just another opportunity to study your word together, and I'm confident that Uh, Your word will not return void. It will accomplish its purpose uh, in all of our hearts and lives. And so, Lord, would you be glorified and honored by uh, taking this message and using it to save those who need to be saved and to sanctify those who need to be sanctified. I pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.